The Dublab Spring Membership Drive is happening now and throughout the month of May. If you enjoy the Dublab archives, help us continue by donating today and become a member. For more details, visit dublab.com slash membership. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dublab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dublab Radio Archives. You're listening to Dub Lab coming to you from Los Angeles. This is Mark Van Hoen, a special edition of Channel of Light, uh, a slow dive special edition of Channel of Light, in fact. I have with me uh, Neil Halstead from the band, and um, we just got back from uh, Pioneer Town. You played at Pappy and Harriet's. Indeed, yes. Yeah. How was it? Uh, it was really good fun. Uh, it, it's actually... I've not been there for quite a while. And it, ch- it changed a little bit, but um, I think last time I was there, the, it was still kind of a biker bar. And I did a, did a, a, a show there with Mojave 3. And, and this time, uh, so I played out in the courtyard. Uh, and it was... Yeah, it was a fun show. It was a Halloween show, so we had some yeah. cost- costumes. The band wore. was all dressed up. Um, you were in a, a cat suit. It, yeah, a little sort of onesie cat suit. <laughs> That's quite cute. Uh, Rachel was, um, I forget her name now, um, the Mexican... Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo, yeah, and very, that was very accurate, I thought. She looked exactly like her. Yeah, she'd worked at it all day. <laughs> yeah, she got the unibrow down really well. It looks excellent. And then uh, I'm not quite sure what was going on with Simon... Simon was just a sort of general sleaze, I think, wasn't he? he was sort yeah. of like he had, he had a sort of a white suit and an open neck shirt and um, slick back hair. He looked remarkably sleazy. I was scared to go anywhere near him. I actually. don't think anyone wanted to go anywhere close. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, what else? Oh yeah, um, uh, Chris was Jay Maskis. Uh, yeah, unfortunately mistaken as Wayne's World <laughs> yeah. for most of the night. No, I thought it was pretty yeah. good, though. I don't, I, I don't really... It was good, yeah. In, in fact, we should have all come as Jay Maskers, I think that would have been... That would have been excellent, yeah. But then, um, what was going on with uh, Nick? Well, I'm Nick quite, was quite sure what he... Nick was basically Nick with a with a um, with a bandana around his, <laughs> his throat. <laughs> he, was, he was Simon, Simon Gallup, wasn't he? OK. Yeah. Because uh, I thought he looked quite... I thought he looked a bit like um, the uh, the bass player from The Clash, actually. Uh, no, he was he was going for the bass player from The Cure. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Easy mistake to make. <laughs> <laughs> Interchangeable. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, it was great. And um, uh, did you did you? I saw all that candy that was around, and did yeah. you end up throwing that out to the audience? Or I hope yeah. it made its way out to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see it, but. Uh, yeah, it was a great set, though, and um, I thought, you know, you're a well-oiled machine now. We are. We are a complete tour kind of monster at this point. We've, we've done so many shows this year that, um, yeah, we just get slightly thrown if we change the set now because we're so kind of... We kind of get into a groove with one set. If we, <laughs> if we change it a bit, it just throws everything off. So, you, so how many more songs have you got other than the set you played last night, for example? Have you, have you got that we could sw- swap in? Yeah, not loads. Probably um, one, <laughs> half a song. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, did yeah. half a song last night. Actually, it was a false start on uh, 
Blue Sky and Clear, was it? Yeah, I forgot to tune up. I thought it was your fault. Yeah, usually is in those <laughs> situations. I get the look from Rachel across the stage. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, you were saying you got a pool of how many more songs? Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. Pro- probably maybe uh, five or six. OK. You can swap in and out. All right, then, so it's not like... It's not like U2 or something where you could... Well, we don't have a massive castle. I mean, we only ever did... Um, well, yeah, you know, I mean, we did... We did uh, how many albums did we do? Two albums plus the new one, so... No, three. Three albums, sorry. You lost plus, count, haven't you? Yeah. Are you trying to... Uh, are you trying to deny the existence of the first album? I do tend to conveniently forget about it, yeah. <laughs> um... I mean, what how do you feel about that now? I mean, do you, do you like, really dislike it? Or, do, I mean, do, were you just sort of young and naive? And, you know, uh, I mean, if I'm honest, I haven't listened to it for such a long time. But, I mean, I, I suppose my feeling is that it was... Um, that it, it's not our best record by a long stretch. And I, and I tend to, like, for me, like, the first few EPs were kind of... I like, and I think they had a sort of an energy that was really good, and they sort of caught us at a certain moment. And then we went in to do the, the album, and we literally had no songs. Right, because you'd kind of uh, blown your load, as it were. Com- completely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, because, I, I mean, I, I love the, you know, the early EPs, and, you know, I, I love the sort of... Um, it's almost like... Um, I mean, not you know, obviously, there's the shoegaze thing, but it's all, they've also got, like, a, a kind of space rock kind of element to them I think that I, I just really loved at the time yeah um, and so where did that come from did you did you have like were you, were you influenced by people like uh, Spaceman 3 and stuff like that for example absolutely yeah I mean Spaceman 3 Loop um, you know obviously the Cocteau Twins and the Valentines and Sonic Youth um, but yeah also, also stuff you know I suppose like um uh, Pink Floyd and um, Can and you know so there was there was definitely a space rock yeah because I mean I think that's like, perhaps yeah. something that you know sometimes missed out on is that uh, I mean it's you know pretty obvious that Valentine's and you know um, all that kind of the creation stuff but you know I, I do I do hear in particularly in those early EPs the you know the, that kind of you know loop Spaceman 3 Kind of thing coming through, and and yeah, and I think there's also elements of it on the on the on the new record as well, uh, where you've kind of come back to that almost like a full circle. Yeah, you know. yeah, definitely that that sort of uh, more hypnotic kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I actually was skipping through the first album um, a few days ago, and I thought, what one thing that really struck me was there was a song called "Ballad of uh, Sister Sue." Yeah, and uh, which actually I think is really Mojave Three. Strangely, yeah, I mean actually I, rem- I remember at the time being super into like Dylan and sort of right and sort of Leonard Cohen and and sort of really kind of getting into like, that kind of music, that sort of more lyric based proper songs, I suppose. Yeah, and, and I remember kind of being quite excited about writing a proper song because I thought Ballad of Sister Sue at that point was. Quite songy, and we'd not really done many proper songs before. Yeah, yeah, totally. So it, it was a different kind of thing for us, but I don't know if we really suited it as a band, you know. But yeah, it was possibly more of a, a kind of an indication of what might. Yeah, you might could, all, you could almost like yeah. hear that if you just change the instrumentation and 
you know, did it in this sort of more of the style that Mojave 3 became later, it would just fit right in there, you know. And it's a nice waltz, that one. It is. It's and uh, Douglas Hart did a really nice video for that one where we all kind of look a bit like the... It was almost like it was Bohemian Rhapsody. He kind of did <laughs> shots of us kind of all silhouetted, overlapping. Right, right. Nice. Oh, I've never seen that. Yeah. I have to dig that out. Worth, um, worth a look. Did you have a leotard on, like, like <laughs> Freddie? <laughs> We should have. <laughs> I mean, we were. Con- I mean, I think for the whole six years we were sort of together. We'd const- we were constantly sort of touring, and then right. you know, it, it was one of those things that I suppose every band, all the bands were doing at that point. You, you just kind of toured, went in, did a record, toured. Yeah. You know, you'd chuck out a few EPs here and there because EPs were sort of quite a good way to sort of keep the momentum going. Yeah. But I think one of the weirdest decision we we made perhaps was not to put any of the singles on that first record. So we deliberately didn't put any any of the songs you know I think it would have been fairly normal for a band to have put at least three or four of the singles onto the, the first album you know and then sort of filled it out and we we sort of made this, a decision to have it a, a completely you know new record yeah you know and so we sort of screwed ourselves essentially a little bit and I remember Creation sort of insisting that we at least put Catch the Breeze on, on the record so that, that did sort of get on there but right but yeah, I mean, so, so there was a compilation that actually we did for Europe, which was a compilation of all the three EPs. Um, and I, I, it's called Blue Day, and I tend to think of that as the first record, really. Right. And I, I sort of, it, like, it's always a bit of a regret for me that that wasn't, like, the first proper album, you know, because I think that would make a cracking sort of album. And I think uh, actually just for a day, although it's sort of interesting and it has a sort of, there's a big sort of Cure influence there. Um, and it's sort of got like a softer kind of sound to it. Is that around. more the the cure thing? Is that more from the rest of the band? Because I, I don't no, know. No, I think I think it was for all of us. I was I was like massively into um, uh, disintegration, and I think that, yeah. that that was sort of really at, at that point. Sort of, it really comes through on that that record. I never really knew that you were ever into the cure. <laughs> that was, that's quite interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So then. Uh, so then you ha- you know you did a, the tour thing between the, that record and Suvlaki, and that seemed like from all the demos that are online and all of that stuff, it seemed like that was quite a long process. Yeah, I mean that's been fairly well documented. In uh, we did a thing for Pitchfork a few yeah. couple of years ago, but yeah, it was a sort of a you know we ended up sort of I think going in and recording a record in a studio in Bath. And pretty much sort of record, you know, it's like eight tracks or something, giving it to sort of McGee, and McGee sort of basically turning around and saying, no, this is not not the record you should be doing. Right. And so we scrapped it all, and, and then we... So it took us about two years, I think, in the end, to do, do Suflaki, and it was a lot... It was quite bitty. Around about that time, we, uh, we were, share, like, flat-sharing, and... Uh, you um, you played me some of the stuff that you'd done with Eno, like the, the sketches, um, which uh, seems to have disappeared. It's somewhere. Yeah, I think yeah. Simon's got a copy, but we've got to dig it out. Right. 
Yeah, so it'd be great to hear that again. And we were actually hoping that we could uh, get a hold of it for, for this programme, but unfortunately it wasn't to be. But uh, maybe we can bring it to you in the future. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I was a massive, massive Eno fan in the uh, late 80s. And uh, I know that you actually weren't too familiar with him at the time. No, I was sort of really sort of, to my sort of shame, um, kind of, although very familiar with sort of Bowie and sort of really into that kind of stuff where he'd worked, worked with other people, I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't aware of his solo stuff at that point. And the connection sort of came through um, someone at Creation just sort of suggesting we, we, we might want to work with him. And I thought, well, that's great, because he's obviously, you know, worked with a lot of other people. And we sent him a sort of a letter, and I think we weren't really expecting him to reply, but he, he, he kind of was <laughs> sort of gracious enough to reply and right. and and sort of uh, invited us to, to sort of spend a couple of days. And in the end, it was just me that went into the studio with him, and I literally just went in with my guitars and my pedals, and, mm-hmm. and he just sort of set me up in a room. And I would record um, just these sort of... Uh, just ten minutes at a time, just any anything that any ideas really, and he would record them, and then um, he would sort of add his sort of treatments to, to some of the stuff I'd recorded, and add little bits and pieces, and mm-hmm. um, we just did that for two days really, and we ended up taking those um, sort of sketches and basically taking two of them and working them up from that, and so Brian wasn't involved after that point you know we sort of just took these sketches so you worked it you worked the tracks up from what you yeah done. took them to the rest of the band and we sort of ended up with um here she comes and uh, and the other track was uh sing um and yeah so we we just we we took those two particular ones and worked them up and um yeah because i actually when i heard um here she comes uh it really reminded me of, you know, particular tracks on Before and After Science, which is, you know, one of the vocal albums from the 70s. In fact, there's a track called Here He Comes. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's almost like, you know, I don't know, I, I, I suppose you had no idea what his vocal delivery was like because you hadn't heard any of his stuff like that, but it's almost like you were singing it in his style and you could almost hear his voice singing it, so it was, like, quite striking at the time. Right, yeah, I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, have a listen. There's, there's kind of a, fl- a, a few slow tunes on Before and After Science, which are amongst my favourite Eno songs, like um, Julie With, um, and um, I think it's called By, By the Sea or something yeah. like I that. I mean, I know the songs, yeah, I've yeah. never really... But I didn't... I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll have another listen. I'll see if I can make the connection with the vocal thing. And yeah, there's the melody is not dissimilar to a song called "The Spider and I" as well, which is also on that record. So yeah, I find that quite interesting. Um, but that's just uh, coincidence, I think. You know, it was complete coincidence. Yeah. yeah. demo it says here um, which is um, one of the one of the things that you did early on in the kind of Suvlaki uh, recordings is that right yeah I, I think I mean that's a demo that I'd have done before you went in to record which was and I think that it, joy was part of the very first session that we did 
in Bath for Suflaki, which we we sort of after we done that, we just ditched all the songs. So, so this version is is a sort of home demo version um, that I'd sort of done to give to the band before we right. Before and we this went is to one. This it. is one of the things that that McGee rejected. Uh, yeah, this was one of the tracks that was. I mean, I actually think the demo probably sounds better than the studio version. Right. Um, in some ways. But yeah, we ended up like, yeah, McGee didn't like the sort of more kind of. I think a lot of that, that, that session was kind of quite heavily uh, sort of Joy Division EQ kind of influenced mm -hmm. stuff, and he just wasn't into that kind of more gothy kind of. Fine, right. I what I mean, what do you think his kind of agenda was at the time? What was he trying to steer you towards? I, th I mean, Alan's just, a, he's just a pop man. He loves pop music, you know, and I think that that's kind of more his... But that's weird, yeah. though, isn't it? Because it's contradictory in a way to, you know, like, certainly the, the uh, Valentines. I mean, you know... But within the Valentines, there's always a brilliant pop song, you know, there's always a great, you know... It, 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 and I, I can understand it. I mean, I don't think it, it possibly didn't... We were sort of... I mean, we were sort of kids, so we were still kind of, like, always trying to move around with the sound, like, being influenced by different things. And, right. And at that point, I was sort of so obsessed with Joy Division that everything I was writing sort of had that kind of slight kind of Joy Division-y vibe to it, and, I, and it possibly didn't really suit the band. It was sort of, like, trying to shoehorn the band in a certain direction that probably we didn't naturally fall into. Right. And I think McGee probably was just like, well, hang on, this isn't really the band that I signed, you know, which was, um, you know, the band he'd signed was a more kind of psychedelic kind of thing, I suppose. Right. So what, how does that conflict with what the other people in the band were into at the time? Well, we, I mean, we were, I mean, Nick was a huge sort of Cure and Toy Division Dude, and, and Rachel was Rachel has always been more into the sort of uh, you know when I met her she was sort of Susie and the Banshees and, um, you know uh, she, she was kind of like a goth you know yeah she, she was like the only goth in the village you know where we grew up um, but we sort of bonded over like the Smiths and the Jesus and Mary chain you know when we were sort of 14 years old yeah um but, you know, I, and I think, you know, so we all had, and, you know, Christian's always just been this indie kid and probably into, into like, uh, you know, more kind of, uh, um, more kind of 60s stuff. And I, and I was, like, hugely into a lot of 60s stuff, like, it's more sort of garage rock and, mm -hmm. um, as well as the sort of more kind of indie kind of stuff. Um, so it, it, it kind of all, it, it kind of made sense, kind of, but I think it was more skewed towards, you know what? What we did in those sort of early Sufaki sessions was was kind of a different slant on. It was a more, it was a moodier version of Slow Dive, I suppose. Right. Not that. Not that. I mean, particularly the first EP is not moody. I mean, I, I, I find. It, I, I mean, it's not dark exactly, but it's. You know, I mean, it's mostly instrumental for start, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Like, um, yeah. I mean, I can see that. I, I guess that it was a. You know, a bit of a startling change from the EPs. So, yeah, makes sense.
hide your eyes from uh, the demos of um, Suvlaki. What do you remember about that one? I remember that this was part, I think I was like going through a bit very Lennon kind of period. And I just, I was trying to, I really liked that kind of crazy vocal sound that he would get on on the sort of like the more acoustic kind of some of the demos that you hear of the Beatles like when they're just using those like across the universe yeah sort of... yeah totally I just yeah. wanted that really phasey vocally and that phase they would get on the acoustic guitars and things and, yeah um, so that, that definitely is is really comes out of that I think and um, and I think it was probably also, I think you pointed out earlier that it's kind of almost the melody is a little bit like Alison's. I think we probably plumped for Alison as the one yeah, it's to, the kind of to go for rather than prototype sort of thing. Yeah, but, uh, certainly like the sound on it and the, you know the, the phase or flange or whatever it is on the vocals, really nice. Um, did, did you actually do any of that on the record? I mean, there was a lot on the guitars, but I don't recall anything on the vocals. I don't think because when we eventually got around to mixing, I think Ed. It did did keep some of the phase guitars, but I don't think we the sort of the kind of stylized vocal kind of Lennon thing didn't really I don't think it was particularly appealing to the rest of the band. Right. As much as I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um that actually always, I always remember I always like love that guitar the phaser on the loudest guitar on Allison. Uh, I think it comes in, in like the like the bridge or the chorus or something. Do you, do you remember what that was? Is, is it guitar pedal? Um, I think actually the in that particular section of the song, that was something that Ed added in the mix stage. Right. Added so. a tremolo and a, and a phase on one of the guitars that just comes out of the come, coming into the second second verse. And it's really nice because it sort of changes the whole texture of the song at that point. And he yeah. was really good actually. I mean, that was what he did brilliantly for us was to sort of just take all the mush out of the record and and to kind of make it interesting you know so it would instead of it just being this big kind of broad sheet splash of colors that he just kind of made it so he would section these songs so he like so take, take stuff away take stuff away so yeah. that each point in the song there'd be something you know coming in rather than it all coming in at the top and yeah. then you know, just getting a bit louder and finishing, which was sort of how we we tended to work. You know, because we we'd end up doing way too many overdubs and not, and then the whole thing would just be this big mush, which we quite liked. And you know, it was sort of part of what we did as a band. But I suppose it didn't. It made it quite hard to listen to. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one. You know, really good plus point about having you know a producer or mixer that is a bit more objective about it, that it's more about, you know, in this instance, taking things away rather than, you know, trying to make everything work that's there. Yeah. Uh, because it's, you know, a fresh uh, pair of ears, as it were. Yeah. Kind of thing. I mean, we got to Ed really late in the process, I think, once we realised that we really couldn't mix the record ourselves, you know, because we'd never worked with a producer before. We'd always sort of just gone in, worked on the records with Chris, um, at Sutton Courtney, um, you know, and we'd, we'd sort of all just worked together on them. And, and it kind of worked for the EPs and it sort of worked up to that point. But with Suflaki, we we sort of just hit a wall with, with where we were with the recording and, and we ended up sort of, I, I think, possibly McGee suggested Ed Buller, someone suggested Ed Buller. Um, what had he done before? 
that you liked? Um, so Ed had um, worked, you know, he'd obviously been in psychedelic furs, and he'd um, he'd done the B. Radleys, which I think was why he was on the, the creation sort of uh, radar, and he'd just done, um, I think, quite, you know, the, the big sort of suede, suede album. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think we just thought, well, let's give it a go, you know, what can we lose? I think we'd, we'd, we thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it needs a sort of a pop touch to, to kind of make it complete, you know. So, um, yeah, so it was kind of a punt, really, as, as, as I guess most, mostly these, these things are, you know, when you're using a producer for the first time. Yeah. But it was more, it was just a mix thing, right? He didn't... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, he literally just came in to mix the record, so yeah. we'd already recorded everything. We, we just went, um, you know, he just took it to a studio and we sort of sat in with him and he just literally just pulled it apart. Right. And we were absolutely horrified initially. <laughs> but, and how long did it take you to get used to it? I mean, like... I, th- I think once we worked with him for a week and, like, and we could start to see the results, you know. Yeah. It, it took a little while for the sort of um, just the preconceptions about what your own ideas about how it should be sounding. Yeah. You know, it took a while to get, get rid of that. Suvlaki was there before you started working on uh, the next record, Pygmalion? I, I feel like there wasn't much of a gap. I feel like we didn't really tour much for, for Suvlaki, particularly. And so I think we probably ended up... I mean, I remember we were sort of... You were living in Labrador Grove, and I remember moving there with, with Darren, and we were in the flat above you. That's right, yeah. And I think you just got... I think you just got, like, a new sampler or something. We we got the advance from Creation and decided that this time, rather than spend the money in a studio, we would spend the money making a studio. So uh, I ended up like buying a load of stuff that I just put in the in the bedroom there. Um, so it was a sampler, uh, first sort of computer with the Atari sequencer and all that stuff. And yeah, I think it was was it one Cubase. of those? Was it a Roland? One of those... 750... Yeah, the, with, uh, the, with the screen, you had to yeah. add a TV to it or something. Yeah, it was, it was like, quite a complicated piece of technology for me at that point. I remember, <laughs> like, struggling with it for, like, weeks. Um, but, yeah, those were happy, happy moments, and, and the sort of a lot of Pygmania was sort of created at that point, and we ended up sort of, you know, just actually taking a lot of the recordings and just... Um, and then mixing them for two weeks. Um, and did you did you mix it live from the from the uh, you know the equipment? Like I mean, you know, when uh, me and friends of mine were making the kind of you know electronic stuff, we would mix directly from the synths and the samplers straight to you know DAT or quarter inch or whatever. And uh, and there are no multi tracks; they just don't exist. And that's how. A lot of that music was made in the sort of early '90s, and I wonder, did you do the same thing, or did you go? To some the- of it was, but we we definitely um, we definitely put some of it onto tape. So we would, you know, so we we have we mixed a lot of it was mixed off tape as well. Right, and um, I suppose that you know you being in a 
kind of very different environment, you know, with different people around. Um, and being exposed to different styles of music had quite a, a big influence on that record. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, you were working with, with your own stuff at the time and also the Seafeel and um, yeah. Quirky was happening at that point, um, which was the, a club in, in Brixton. Um, yeah, it was a club um, some friends of mine uh, started. Um, James Bignall, who was uh, done some photography uh, on, on some records of mine, and he was you know, a big fan of that music generally, and he was like, oh, you know, I really want to start a club. And um, and then there was Tony Wilson, who was this uh, kid at the time, like over-enthusiastic kid. Well, not over-enthusiastic, but just brilliantly enthusiastic. And we just got some really incredible people to play there you know it was like Aphex and Orteca and you know it was kind of like all of those people that have since become sort of legendary they were just playing every every week or every month you know um but it was yeah it was definitely a very exciting time I yeah that, that that was great I mean it was great for me as sort of coming from a sort of different um place with music I suppose you know coming from sort of an indie kind of vibe and just kind of it, it was I kind of just soaked all that up and a lot of that ended up sort of influencing Pygmalion, you know, as well as stuff, you know, like Talk Talk. And yeah, I mean, I think that that was definitely, you know, I think the the very, uh, like, late 80s and very early 90s, that it was very kind of like, you know, you had indie and you had, you know, dance music and electronic music, techno or whatever, and they just really didn't meet. No. But it was around about that kind of time that, uh, you know, things started to cross over. And, and I think, you know, definitely that club was, uh, you know, a real representation of that. How do you think that all happened, the transition from, you know, Slow Dive to Mojave 3? What, um, was it just, you know, you wanted to just do something new, kind of clear the boards as it were, or were you just naturally changing your taste in music? Um, I think um, just changed. Um, I think I got a bit tired of music. You know, I think after Slow Dive, and I got to the point where I felt like I wanted to do something more organic, like personally, and um, particularly working on Pygmalion, which is quite a cold sort of record, and we use computers a lot and a lot of sequencing um, and lots of loops. Um, and it was like a texture kind of atmospheric based record and I just I suppose just reacted against that by just becoming more kind of absorbed with with sort of lyric based music and just country music and um, folk music and 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 I think that just sort of coming back after after Soda I've, we, I you know Rachel uh, myself and Ian McCutcheon ended up recording these demos. Um, just, I just had these songs that were kind of pretty much like country songs, really, and so we recorded them in that way. But they have a weird kind of ambience to them, I think, because we were still used to having reverb on everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the time, uh, you know, it seemed like a, a really kind of uh, startling change 
particularly from Pygmalion. But when you listen to it in context now, it's you know sonically not that far removed from. I can't remember the track on Pygmalion, which is just acoustic guitar and vocal. All of us, that track. All of us, yeah. yeah, which is almost could be on the first Mojave album as well. Not, you know, not quite so heavy with the reverb and everything, but um, you know, certainly there was some kind of crossover there. But do you, I mean, do you feel like that it, anything to do with the way that um, you know creation reacted to? Pygmalion as well were you kind of smarting from it that sort of thing you know no not at all I think (laughs) I mean it sort of sounds a bit ridiculous but there there was almost like uh, I think I kind of knew that that the reaction to Pygmalion was not going to be particularly uh, a great one you know because I knew that McGee wanted a pop record and we were making this record that was blatantly not a pop record that he had not heard so when we delivered it I knew that the reaction was probably going to be Slightly off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, did he did he uh, hate it, or did he think it was good for what it was, kind of thing? Um, I think that he didn't understand it at the time, and I've not really ever spoken to Alan about it in, in the sense that I did. I don't. It, it's not a record that would probably register on his radar, and and, and you know, it, you have to think there's a time he just signed Oasis, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like. I mean, that's really why the I was asking. The zeitgeist was not either sort of, you know, sort of weird ambient music, nor was it sort of country music, which was sort of the kind of the two polar extremes that we were, yeah. that I was sort of working at in those, in those sort of years. And um, But I just wondered, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, it was the whole Oasis thing and it was very much in that headspace, but I just wondered, you know, I mean, you've already said that he's, he's never really talked to you about it, but I'm just wondering if, you know, in hindsight, he probably might sit there and think, oh, well, you know, actually, that's a really good record. Uh, it's a shame I was so polarised towards the pop stuff and, uh, you know, perhaps he does, you never know. I don't know, I doubt it. I mean, I think I've got a lot of respect for Alan and, and I think he's got a lot of respect for me and, 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 and for Sodai, but, you know, I think that, that his taste in music probably... I'm not sure if he would enjoy that record, you know. But then, you know, I suppose, again, going back to the Valentines, I mean, they were, you know, very experimental at times. Like, uh, you know, the track To Hear Knows When. I mean, you can't hear the vocals, you can't hear the drums, and it sounds like the, the tape's warping and everything, you know? So there is a precedent there for him. Yeah, but I think... fond of experimenting. But they, they were coming at it... From, they, they just had these pop songs buried amongst it all. There was always a great melody, you know? And, and But, you know, Creation was a pop label, you know, really. He liked great pop music. It's just bands with great tunes and... Um, and I, you know, I don't think um, you know. I think Alan will be the first to say that he's not like. Uh, although he has championed experimental music, it's sort of been inadvertent, you know. And in right. some ways, um, you know, the Valentines were like this massive love-hate thing for Alan. I would imagine because they, they, you know, they, they virtually bankrupt the label. And he was always trying to get a record out of them, you know. But he obviously loved them as artists and musicians. And um, but, but yeah, it's a different sort of, you know. It's not like it's a different kind of label, isn't it? It's, it's, it's sort of different to 4AD in, or Warp, or you know. It, it, it is definitely the like creation what I always thought of as a sort of a pop label. You know? I suppose the styles on it weren't as, as broad as. Some of those labels that you've mentioned, particularly 4AD, who, who've had a you know like a massive 
range of different styles of music on their yeah. label over the years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously then, uh, you know, Mojave 3 went into kind of full force and, uh, you know, I guess uh, how long it was uh, between... Uh, I think you did the first one and was it 96 or 95? I think possibly 95, although... Uh, yeah, yeah. and, and it, I guess it ran for about, what, 10, 12 years in total? Last like, record was 2006. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, the slow dive reunion thing started to become something that uh, you were thinking about and or everybody else was, you know, considering? Um, I suppose it was first mentioned in 2013. I'd done a solo show in, um, in London and I'd... Uh, Rachel had uh, sort of kindly come and sung a few songs with me and um, it had been organised by... Uh, um, Nat, Nat Cramp, who runs uh, Sonic Cathedral Records in in the UK, and um, I sort of I've known Nat for a long time, and he puts out my solo records, and he's a massive, massive fan of uh, all things sort of shoegaze, and um, and he was sort of bugging me about. He knew that uh, he knew that the rest of Soul Dive were going to be at the gig, and so he was like, "Well, Rachel's there. You're going to be doing these songs. Why don't they all go up and you can do an acoustic version of <laughs> of Alison or something?" And I was By like, "Stealth." Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Well, Nat, you know, we we would never do anything acoustic. It's just not really our style." And he was like, "Exactly. You should just." do electric <laughs> um, and we you know I think after we'd all sort of laughed about it I think it it it, it sort of became I thought it, it sort of emerged I suppose that actually we'd all be quite into doing it you know playing a few songs together you know kind of in a, in a way you know which was I think su surprising to all of us and so I think the conversation sort of started then really so it's sort of Nat, Nat's fault really and and I think when we did eventually do it, the first show we did was the 10-year anniversary of Sonic Cathedral, which was a really nice sort of way for us to sort of say thanks to Nat. And, and um, because he, he, really, he really sort of flew the flag for shoegaze when it was really in, in, out in the cold, you know, like yeah, yeah, for, for many, many years. Yeah. Some of the... Some of the oh, I used to go to some of the nights he put on, um, he, I think... Uh, uh, he got uh, Emma Anderson in to do some stuff, and uh, you know, I think I think he got the Reed brothers in. Yeah, one yeah, of them yeah. And, he, he yeah, it was just keep 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 at it, really, and it was you know very cool to to have that running. Um, and I suppose really it, it was just you know enough time had lapsed for you know that time the healer and all that kind of stuff, so that it was just felt like the right time to get back together. And you know, it's this also this thing that has been happening for the last, you know, 15, 20 years on the internet where bands that were not that well-known or were well-known and, um, you know, they kind of build momentum on the internet, don't they, and gain more fans. I mean, I'm thinking particularly, yeah. you know, like Krautrock and stuff like that. It's sure, sort yeah. of, you know, become so much bigger than it ever was in the, you know, the 80s and 90s just through the kind of phenomena of the internet. And I think, you know, probably the same thing happened with Slow Dive, that the, the word spread by the internet and it, and and it's you know opened you up to much bigger audiences and of course the other thing is that 
you know, the, the whole music business thing has turned on its head, so it's like, it's all about playing live now. So, you know, you... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you used to, you know, you used to sort of... Tour, tour to promote the record, record, and now, now you put the record out to promote the tour. Exactly. Or to have a reason to tour. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's... Um, so you started, you know, you, what you, you played festivals initially, didn't you, when you... Yeah, we, I, I mean, we sort of got, I mean, when we were talking, you know, we were sort of coincidentally talking about putting the band back together, possibly, and then we got an offer from Primavera to play, play the festival, and so that sort of really kicked things off. And we ended up doing, uh, yeah, a whole summer of festivals in 2014, which then extended into sort of touring in 2015 and doing more festivals and, and a sort of North American run of shows. And, and, and then we... I think we'd always sort of, when we said, well, let's sort of do it, we, we'd said we need to do a record, you know, it's not just about just going out and playing the old songs, you know, I think if we're going to do it, then we need to be conscious. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's only a, a certain amount of time you can do that for, kind of to rely on the nostalgia and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah... So you'd completed like that, that that kind of tour of festivals, as it were, and then decided to go and record a record. And how did the how was the dynamic different to you know back in the nineties when you recorded the record? Was it would you do you perceive it more to be much more of a band effort this time around? Um, I think I mean I th I feel like the dynamic is is pretty similar, and and you know we've we've always worked well as a band in the studio and I, what tends to happen is I do a lot of the groundwork so I'll do demos or I'll write the songs and then bring them to to everyone but it's not always the case I mean there's definitely there's there's definitely songs that will sort of jam out as, as a band you know like uh, Avalyn is an example of one of those sort of songs which is sort of comes you know as a, as a sort of a more band thing you know um and so that that was still the case with this record, you know. And we, so we would do sessions where we would just go to a studio for a weekend, and because uh, it has to be weekends now because we have kids. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, of course the other big change in dynamic is that you know that you have this very limited time. And I suppose you know through age and experience, you you realise that you have to make it work, and you can't sort of sit around for days in studios and waste time. Yeah, you know, so I mean, it's just really about you know being able to use that time very wisely and uh, efficiently you know yeah and I mean the technology helps these days as well because you can sort of bounce files around between you and you know I can just you know sort of Nick uh, our bass player Nick Chaplin had you know he'd not been in a studio in 20 years so he was really freaked out when we took him to a studio and he wondered why everyone was sort of staring at the computer screen <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I guess that must feel really strange. Cause you know, like, and we yeah. kept stopping him, and he was like, why do you keep stopping me? And we're just like, well, that's enough. We can, you know, we don't need to... it up. <laughs> we can fix it. <laughs> yeah, we can fix that. <laughs> right. Oh, I, did, I had no idea that it was the case. And, you know, I suppose, yeah, if you're used to the, the 24 track running and you know, that tape going round and playing your bass or whatever, it's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how much a focus the computer screen is these days, well, you know. Yeah. It's, it never used to be the case. You wouldn't, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's... Yeah, I, I, I think that that's definitely something that um, has made, you know... I mean, there's been some fantastic music made with computers, obviously, but um, it's something, you know, sometimes I have nostalgia for is making, you know 
without making music without your eyes. I think it, you know it's a great shame that we do focus on on the computer. Um, yeah, rather I mean, than just using our ears. You know? Well, we do it without thinking, don't we? We sort of. I know everyone I know in the studio is. It's as soon as they hear playback, they start looking at the so screen. Where, where yeah. is it? Where's it going from? <laughs> yeah, which is kind of. It is interesting. It's a different vibe. The record take to record, like from start to finish, or, you know, write and record. Was it like... uh, two years? I'd say. I mean, two we, years. yeah, we we started doing stuff in 2015, and mm. we kind of we got to a point in 2016, uh, I think in July. That, that at that point, we decided we had enough kind of stuff to go back to Courtyard Studio, which was where we did a lot of the older records and. Chris Hufford still owned own the studio, and it was still pretty much the same. Different, different, um, different desk. Yeah, a nice Neve desk in there, but the sofa was exactly the same. The layout was exactly <laughs> the same. I felt like if I went and looked in the back of the shelves, I would see stuff that would probably be in there. <laughs> you know, when we were first, it was great. It was really lovely to go back, and we sort of spent a month just basically just pulling all these strands of the record together. And, right. Um, and then ended up sort of taking it to to here, LA, to um, Sunset Studios with Chris Cody. Yeah. How did that happen? How did you? Uh, were you just kind of drawn to what he'd done previously, or did, had you met him before? Well, I think um, we sort of learned our lesson with Suflaki and realised that we were going to need someone to mix it. So we started sending stuff out to a few different people, and Chris was on the list because. We all big fans of Beach House, love, love, love this kind of sound of the records, you know. Yeah. And, um, and we'd sent out uh, a track called uh, Star Roving, which seemed like the most complicated track to mix, you know. We felt like if, if someone could get a handle on that, then they could probably do the whole record. And yeah, he, he came back, his, his, you know, he was kind enough to do a mix on spec and he, he sent it back and we were, you know, that was the one where as a band we were like, yeah, this is sort of, this sounds right. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting from the point of view of what we were talking about earlier when you said that um, Ed Buller, who'd done uh, Suvlaki, would, you know, strip things out to make, you know, give it that breathing space and clarity. And I, I had actually sat in the studio with, um, with Chris... Uh, some years earlier and I noticed you know he was working on something I don't remember what it was but something that had an absolute wall of guitars in it but he he wasn't uh, you know stripping stuff out but he was kind of sculpting space for the, all these guitars yeah using like EQ and whatever he might have done yeah, he no, seems like a bit of an expert at that you know? he's brilliant and and he's also quite nerdy about it as well so he will get a graphic up you know he will yeah. get like a, a visual thing up and just say well that's kind of you know which was interesting I'd never done that before where you actually kind of you know you look at the See. Yeah, you create the sonic space for each of the guitar parts and, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And certainly, um, I think when we uh, did the Black Hearted Brother album, I did um, mix a couple of tracks with that in mind because I hadn't seen him do it. And, and I thought, well, you know, that's we keep, we can get to keep all these guitars and give them their spaces, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing that he does and, you know, he's uh, pretty darn good at it yeah he's amazing 
Um, so, and then, uh, yeah, obviously it came out and, um, I mean, my perception of it is it did pretty well. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we were all, you know, it did as well as we ever imagined it could do, you know, so mm -hmm. I think it, 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 you know, I think we were all pretty happy with the response to the record and De Dead Oceans would have been great with it, the sort of label that we, we that put it out. Um, so yeah, and it's you know it's, it's been it's been really nice to be able to sort of get that out and to be able to go out and play some more shows this year and to be able to be playing these, these new songs. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's a really really good mixture of the you know I mean you, you're playing what about half of the album? Is that right? Uh, yeah, about 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 five uh, four or five songs. Yeah, I found it a really nice balance between the you know the old and new material, and um, you know it's great that. So you're on like a world tour at the moment, right? Or are you just finishing North America now? You yeah, you already done Europe, right? We, we did. We did. Yeah, we did three weeks in Europe, and we've got another three weeks out here, and we finish in um, I think Florida was the last show we do, and uh, and then we sort of uh, we have some shows in Asia, yeah, and Australia next year, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be uh, we would have done. We will have done the world. And then it's back to your uh, your, your full-time job in Blackhearted Brother. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's definitely some work awaiting, I believe, yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come in and, and talk uh, today. Um, Thank you, Mark. Always a pleasure. And uh, you're listening to Dub Lab coming to you from Los Angeles. I've been talking to Neil Halstead from Slow Dive for the last couple of hours. I'm Mark Van Hoen. This is Channel of Light. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.